Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I'm excited to announce that we are going to have some merch at this year's Theology in the Raw Exiles in Babylon conference. Um, you should know about that conference. If you don't, you can go to pressthesprinkle.com, get all the info there. Um, but, but we are going to not only have merch, but I am asking for you creative types to submit a design for the conference t-shirt. We're going to have one particular t-shirt that's kind of like the conference t-shirt. And since I don't know how to design a t-shirt, but many of you do, I'm like, hey, why don't I just reach out to people listening to the podcast who want to submit a design? If you would like to submit a design for the conference t-shirt, all the info is in the show notes. You can submit it to chris at theologyintheraw.com. Please submit your designs before November 26th, okay? Just a couple weeks away. Um, if you're listening to this podcast when it comes out and the theology, me and the theology and the raw team will design, we'll, we'll, we'll pick the top three designs. And then of those top three designs, we'll submit them to my Patreon supporters who will select the final design. They don't even know about that yet, but yeah, Patreon supporters, it's coming. And if you get selected to the top three designs, then you will get free admission to the conference. Okay. Free admission to the conference for the top three designs. Uh, and if you are selected as the top design for the conference t-shirt, like if your design becomes a conference t-shirt, then you get free admission to the conference. You get free admission to the after party on Friday night. Um, you also get uh, free <laughs> a free dinner at my house. We're going to have a group of just a small group of selected people at my house for dinner during the conference, and you will be able to come and hang out with a Sprinkle Clan and a few selected guests. So, uh, again, all the info is in the show notes. As far as the design of the t-shirt, I, honestly, you can do whatever. Um, it's got to kind of fit the vibe, the theme of the podcast and the conference. So if you want to have, you know, Exiles in Babylon or Theology in Iraq or just Exiles or Exiled or whatever, um, you know, written out on the shirt, that's totally fine. Or it can be you know, no, no words at all. I mean, again, whatever, whatever you feel like would really fit the vibe of the conference. You can have sayings if you want, like understand before you refute or allegiance to a kingdom, not a political party. Jesus is political, but not partisan or, or whatever things you've heard me say on the podcast. Just have fun with it. Um, I think that's about it. Yeah. And if you want to check out um, if you, if you're, if you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about, dude, who are you? And what is this podcast? And what is this conference? Again, pressandsprinkle.com has all the info on the conference that's next year here in Boise, March 20th, March 31st through April 2nd. Okay. My guest is my friend, Dr. Jarvis Williams. Jarvis and I go way back. Um, we got to know each other. Gosh, I want to say, uh, about 10 years ago at a, at a theological conference. And he's just, he's just, um, I just have so much respect for this dude. He is such an incredible biblical scholar. He's written tons of stuff, including a commentary on Galatians. He's got a forthcoming commentary on Romans coming out. He's got loads of books coming out over the next several years. He's written academic books, popular level books. And his latest book is Redemptive Kingdom Diversity, A Biblical Theology of the People of God, which deals with what the Bible has to say about race relations in the church, a topic he's devoted much of his scholarly attention to. Jarvis is Associate Professor of New Testament Interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he's taught since 2013, and he's just an all-around wise and humble dude. So, um, yeah, welcome to the podcast, the one and only Dr. Jarvis Willard. Dr. Jarvis Williams, thanks for coming on Theology in Raw. Thanks for having me, brother. Good do, to see you. Do you remember when we first met? I, I, I could picture it in my mind like it was yesterday. Do you remember? I do remember. I think it was ETS 2008 in Providence, Rhode Island. You came, you and I presented a paper in yeah. the same session. And uh, you were one of the one of the few kind people who actually showed up to hear my paper. So I really appreciated that. Well, I remember um, you asking then, a question in the back when I gave my paper and I forgot what the question was, but it had to do with like early Jewish literature, like pseudepigrapha, you know, the pseudepigrapha and apocalyptic literature and like just the nature of question. I was just so, my heart was so warm that you were in the same literature that I was like at that time, especially just absolutely loving and thriving mm -hmm. in. And I'm like, dude, this guy gets it. So I think it was on mm. well because you did your dissertation on on Galatians three thirteen right or the the curse um, 
that was that was one piece of it. I, I, I think I spent a lot of time in the dissertation on Romans three, but then I, I published a monograph a few years later on Galatians three thirteen. Oh, that wasn't your dissertation. Dealing with the no, no, that was a monograph that I did years after that focused on the martyrological uh, background in front of which to read Galatians three thirteen. Okay. And if I remember correctly, I think your paper was actually some of the work that you were doing on divine and human agency yeah. in. Uh, 1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1Q1
a biblical theology of the people of God. So the first thing I'm trying to do is make the argument that uh, from the very foundation of the world, it was God's vision to redeem some from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Mm-hmm. And that it was his vision in Christ Jesus, this, this Jewish God-man, to restore everything that Adam and Eve lost in the garden. And I argue in the book that God uh, gives us a promise in Genesis 3.15 mm-hmm. that in the midst of this judgment that comes as a result of, the, of sin, God curses uh, human beings, he curses the ground, he curses, curses the cosmos, and our relationship with God is broken, our relationship with each other is broken, and our relationship with creation is broken. Creation, to use Paul's language, is groaning mm-hmm. cosmically. There's an agony for for redemption. And so it's my view in Genesis 3.15 that God promises that in the midst of that judgment, he's going to, to paraphrase the verse, crush crush the seed of the serpent by means of the seed of the woman. And I think that seed of the woman ultimately is realized and fulfilled in, in Jesus Christ. And so there's a vertical redemption, a horizontal redemption, and a cosmic redemption. Vertically, God's going to make, he's going to restore the relationship that was lost between humanity and, and God because of Adam's transgression. And horizontally, he's going to restore the relationship with fellow hum, human beings that was broken and, and lost as a result of sin. And then cosmically, God is going to create a new universe. He's going to restore this world so that it's like Eden, but better. No sin, no fall, no devil, no evil. But ultimately, our destination uh, is to this heavenly city filled with different tongues, tribes, peoples, and nations. That's one piece of the, of the argument. But then another piece of the argument is, is that I argue that God's vertical, horizontal, and cosmic redemption has already broken into this present evil age right now by the indwelling presence and power of the Spirit because God raised Jesus from the dead. And we in Christ are raised from the dead, but we live in a real world where there's still brokenness and beauty, but there's also brokenness. And God gives us the Spirit as an emblem or a signpost of that future cosmic redemption that is yet to come. And as we live on earth as the people of God from different tongues, tribes, peoples, and nations, we are pursuing love of God mm-hmm. and love for one another by the power of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And that means in part that we are seeking to love our, our, our neighbors as ourselves, which means practically that uh, my identity in Jesus, although I'm still an African-American man, with the real story and a real heritage and a, and, a, and a specific social location. But I share kinship with you, mm-hmm. who is not an African-American man, because we are both in Jesus Christ. And so we need to pursue love for one another. So then I'm taking that biblical theology mm-hmm. and I'm applying it to the current race conversation to deal with issues related to race and racism mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the ways in which racism operates and works in both the church and in society to offer what I think is, is a biblical and theological way forward that is um, more helpful than some of the uh, ways forward others are, are offering. And, uh, you know, one final word related to this, I think another thing that is, is helpful to, to realize and what I'm trying to do is the book is not about race in that it's not a book about history of racism and, and all these sorts of things. I define race and talk about what I'm what I mean by that, and what racism is and what systemic racism is and all those things. Mm-hmm. But the book is not a book about race. Uh, but and the book is not a biblical theology in the in the popular sense where I'm trying to trace a a, a theme as a unifying theme in the Bible. Okay. But it's a book that applies okay. biblical text mm-hmm. and the theology from those texts, hence biblical theology to the current conversation about race and racism. And so my final chapter is about 37 pages where I'm applying this, this analysis to some specific conversations in the end, oh, not so just to the race conversation, okay. but, but, but I'm, I'm front loading in the application, the race conversation, but also touch on the issues related to like political identity and some other areas related to basic yeah. Christian. Man, that sounds, as you're, it sounds exciting, first of all. And I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about this and I think we're on pretty much 
the same pages. Um, as you're talking, it made I, the, the the unique feature. It seems like I mean I'm sure there's several, but by rooting it in creation too, it's not just vertical horizontal. It's actually cosmic like that. That's something I haven't wrapped my mind around, um, and I'm excited to see how you do that. It made me think of just as you're talking. It made me think of one of the main arguments in the book of Ephesians. I mean, I, I used to mm. think like you know Ephesians two eleven to twenty two is kind of like all right. Here's the ethnic reconciliation passage, but that's rooted in the whole fullness of God on earth at the end of chapter one, which is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus, and then Paul goes on what scholars I think wrongly say is a tangent in chapter three where Paul's given his own mm. personal narrative of being swept up in this, in this cosmic story of, of being, you know, bringing together being an agent of God, bringing together Jew and Gentile. But then in one of my favorite passages, I mean, you're a Greek geek, so you'll appreciate this, but that Hina clause in three ten is one of the most underrated, undernoticed yet most powerful statements in the book mm. where mm. I think it connects in Greek a one sentence from 3.2 to 3.10. In 3.8, 7 and 8, there might be a, a break. I can't remember. But the Hina clause, which is in order that, like it's this purpose clause in 3.10, which is almost giving a climactic conclusion, not mm. just to chapter mm. 3, not just chapter 2, but all the way to chapter 1 when Paul trails off with his prayer, revisits it at the at the end of three, in order that the wisdom of God might be broadcasted mm. to the principalities and authorities in the heavenly places. So this ingathering of Jew and Gentile, this ethnic reconciliation accomplished through the cross and resurrection is to broadcast to, I would say, the cosmic forces that God won in a sense, like this, this, this satanic oh. attempt at ethnic division was overcome through Jesus Christ. Um, now that, but that summary, I mean, I, I've heard many sermons on Ephesians or even talks or whatever, and I don't see that thread tugged on nearly as hard enough, but then even more recently, it's when you get into chapter four, sorry, I'm, there's a, no, I'm no, interviewing no, myself here good. in ch chapter four, you the spirit and unity is not divorced from what's gone on in one to three. There is no such thing mm. that my well, full biblical unity has a multi-ethnic component built in, according to Ephesians one, one to four. I, I would think. Am I correct me or or uh, uh, agree with me or what? Is am I is that a sound reading of Ephesians? No, that's good. Yeah, that's very good. I I, I think in addition to what you said, I would want to also say related to the book that. Um, you know, one of the things I'm arguing in the book is, is that sin, sin fundamentally is a is a theological issue and um, and racism. Right. Is a theological issue. Yeah, because we have yeah. racism because of fundamentally because of sin. Okay. Now, of course, of course. And I say this in the book that racism is connected to power and and structure, yeah. structural issues. It's not yeah. limited to that. But historically, in our context, in the American experience, especially, it is connected to this idea of racial hierarchy. And, and then racism eventually, as our new world and United States uh, evolve, begins to emerge, you have racism taking on a life of its own. So that not only are the powerful racist, but the powerful can likewise be racist. Why? Uh, the powerful and the powerless can can both be racist. Okay. Why? Because okay. sin is both a an individual transgression, but it's also a cosmic problem. So when I talk about sin in the book, sin is a is we are conceived in sin. It's original. We uh, we commit sins, all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. But sin is also a cosmic power. Mm -hmm. So then when you're talking about about the the structural power of racism. Uh, I argue in the book that that is one of the principalities and powers of the air for which Jesus died and resurrected to disarm. Right. So then one of the things right. that we will not have in the new heavens and the new earth is structural racism or any form of racism, uh, individual racism or individual or, or structural racism. Those, those things will be put to death. But those realities have already begun to be put to death in part now in this present evil age. 
in Christ Jesus as Christians living by the power of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Yes, preach the gospel. Yes, teach the gospel. Yes, apply the gospel. But use common grace and common sense in the real world mm -hmm. to subvert all things under the righteousness of Jesus Christ inasmuch as we're able in this present evil age. And as we do that, we are giving a piece of evidence that Jesus has disarmed, looking at Ephesians 3.10 now, mm -hmm. he has disarmed these rulers and authorities, mm -hmm. earthly and demonic rulers and authorities, right? Mm -hmm. Not just earthly rulers, but earthly and demonic rulers. And so uh, related to this issue, it's important for your audience as well to recognize, my book is not about the multi-ethnic church. I am okay. pro-multi-ethnic okay. church. I'm from a multi-ethnic family. I'm, a, I'm one of the pastors of a multi-ethnic church in an, in an urban context. But my book makes the argument that mono-ethnic churches, mono-ethnic churches that have no um, opportunities to be multi-ethnic can still lean into this redemptive kingdom diversity because it's grounded in the image of God, in my argument, and it's grounded in the wrath-bearing uh, death of Jesus and his victorious resurrection from the dead. And it's grounded in the fact that God has disarmed the principalities and powers of the air through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So then, redemptive kingdom diversity in this Ephesians 2 and 3 uh, application is not only for those who can work it out in multi-ethnic context. It's for all Christians from every tongues, tribes, peoples, and nations, even in mono-ethnic context, they are invited into this narrative of living out God's vertical, horizontal, and cosmic redemption in the real world with real people as a loud sermon to the devil and to the demons mm -hmm. and to the world. Jesus is Lord. He reigns. And the people of God are inviting as many people who want to enter into this story into the story through Jesus to participate in this transformed, redemptive community the centerpiece of which is Jesus, and the foundation of which is his wrath-bearing death and his victorious wow. resurrection wow. from the dead. And so I, I'm trying to say that in the book. <laughs> you said it, man. So curious, because you would, I'm thinking out loud here, like thinking through my question, you would expect that cosmic reality to be manifested practically in multi-ethnic individual churches except where it's not mm. i don't want to say not possible but if you're not living in an ethnically diverse area then you wouldn't expect that ethnically diverse church would put it positively whatever ethnic diversity exists in your church context you would expect to be reflected on some level in the church but like i live in I live in Idaho, right? I mean, it's 92% Caucasian. And even there, the minimal diversity we have is very, you know, they, you know um, living in certain areas within, within the state and even the city. So most most churches do reflect that. And it's just, it's it's hard to get around that. Is that is that what you're saying? Like, like mono-ethnic churches are still participating in the spiritual warfare and they don't necessarily have to reflect multi-ethnicity in the individual congregation if that's not in the neighborhood they're in. Is that what, is that what you're saying? Or that, That's part of what I'm saying. I have a section in the book called uh, multi-ethnic churches and the people of God. And in which I essentially say what you just outlined okay. that uh, churches are in multi-ethnic context and that have the, opportunities to be multi-ethnic should pursue that with joy that for for those churches redemptive kingdom diversity will will have a a, a diversity of of skin colors in the congregation but then i also want to encourage mono-ethnic churches who who are not in spaces where they can have a a, ref, a, a diversity of skin colors to know that redemptive kingdom diversity is for them too. It's just going to look differently in their context. And they, they need to be creative to think about how they can participate in this grand redemptive vision. Uh, that might mean praying for, partnering with uh, churches with whom they don't share the same ethnic postures. That might mean seeking to uh, to serve in, in areas of, of Christian ministry where they can uh, use their resources to help bless congregations or to help reach out to 
so we don't share their ethnic posture. But in addition to that, I also make this point, and this is a, a, a point that um, is important, that when we think about ethnic diversity, we often mean uh, diversity that is apparent based on skin color. Yeah. But I would yeah. argue that ethnicity is much bigger than that. Yeah. So that ethnicity, so you can have people who are part of the same uh, skin complexion that have different ethnicities. Mm -hmm. So, so for example, I'm I'm an African American with a with uh, a, a multi ethnic heritage, mm -hmm. and um, I have I have friends who are who are uh, who are black but they're not African-American. So I'm black and I am African-American, but I have friends who are black Latina or Latino or black Haitian. Right. And that's ethnic diversity. Right. Similarly, when we talk about white image bearers, we often make uh, the category of white flat. And we ignore the fact that within that flat category of white, by flat, I mean, we essentially, people essentially group white people into one category and ignore the fact that people who are uh, categorized as white might have a variety of different or do have a variety of different ethnic, ethnic backgrounds. Some might be Italian, some might be right. um, German or, or pick, a, pick an ethnicity. So one of the things I'm saying in the book is, is that if you are in a situation where you can't have diversity that is apparent because of skin color, uh, you still have opportunities to live redemptive kingdom diversity in your social location in ways that bring the power of the gospel to bear on society by loving God and loving neighbor and seeking, yes, to see people one to Jesus by faith, but also seeking to love people well who might reject your faith yeah. because kingdom diversity is about living redemptively hmm. in your context, wherever you are. And that might mean living with people from different skin colors. That might mean living with people from the same skin colors redemptively, but living redemptively with those who are similar to you or not similar mm -hmm. as you are because of what God has done for us vertically, horizontally and cosmically in Jesus. So when you look at, you and you look at me, we obviously are ethnically different because of our skin tone. Mm -hmm. But in Christ Jesus, I I need to be living redemptively with those who might share my ethnic posture, but with whom I don't naturally have anything in common. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love that distinction between but also in Yeah, that between ethnicity and race. I think sometimes we collapse those together. Um yeah, but that's would you so race I, that that is more of a mo i mean modern construct anyway mm. right whereas ethnicity has always been around i guess since the tower <laughs> um race though is that is that true i mean that's that's what i keep hearing and learning from other people who have done research here i mean the very con the very concept of organizing people based on simply skin color like that is a much more modern thing um is that true? Yeah, yeah. You know, again, if I can just keep going back to the book, one of the things I say in chapter one of the book is I I start in the garden. Well, chapter in the introduction, I, I define my category, state my thesis, and these sorts of things. But in chapter one, I start in the, in the garden, in Genesis chapters one and two, to make the argument that the, the, the only race the Bible talks about is, is the human race. Yeah. And... And the, the, the concept of race is, is a word that speaks to uh, these human beings, Adam and Eve, whom God created in his very own image in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And um, when we think about the different um, tongues and tribes and peoples and nations that flow out of the offspring of, of Adam and Eve and out of the offspring of, of Noah, that's more like ethnicity. Uh, than what we mean by ethnicity, than what we mean when we talk about race. Mm -hmm. You're right, and I say this in the book, although it is true that in in the ancient world, the, the concept of, I'll say it this way, the concept of otherizing people mm -hmm. um, based mm -hmm. on categories of inferiority, inferiority or superiority, mm -hmm. 
the, that was kind of operating in some ways in, in antiquity. At least some scholars have made that argument. But you're right. The the word race that we use in the American context, starting in the colonies and on into the U.S., is a is a fairly new thing because that word was created was was um, constructed in a context of uh, racial hierarchy and seeking to make superior and inferior distinctions within the human race and and prioritizing uh, one group of people, namely those who were categorized as white, over the enslaved African. Uh, and so then the word race in our narrative is not a good word. It is it is it has always been, in my understanding, or in my view, it has always been in the in the colonial experience and then in the in the uh, American experience. And I know that I'm using that language generally because we know that colonial and um, that's a very complex yeah. uh, reality. Right? But the basic point I'm making is, is that the word race was a word of dehumanization to show that uh, there is a racial hierarchy within the human race. And then that that word and that concept Mm -hmm. in our context takes on a life of its own so that it historically, quite often we 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 talk about race and racism. It focuses on the black white divide because of the historical origins of that concept in our country, the slavery and connected to uh, the Reconstruction era, connected to Jim Crow and, and its aftermath. But uh, as I argue in the book, that although racism does not look the same in every context, racism takes on a life of its own in different contexts, so that you have black racism, you have brown racism, you have Asian racism, you have white racism. And we're talking about a specific, a specific thing when we're talking about these different kinds of racism. And they're not all to be understood in the same way, but all but racism is evil mm-hmm. and racism nevertheless, mm-hmm. regardless of the ethnic group from which it comes, it just doesn't operate the same way in those groups, if that makes sense. Yeah. So then in the historical yeah. narrative, the, the creation or the invention of race as a, as a category is connected to this idea of structural power as well as to individual animosity. And but racism doesn't stop at uh, the structural level, in my view, because of the universal power of sin. Right. As I said earlier, right. uh, the powerless can also be racist because it's a sin issue. They just can't be racist in the same way as the powerful. So I, since you mentioned, I would really love to dive into, you know, the the structural aspect. So, I mean, in the race conversation today and here I'm thinking both inside the church and outside the church, um, you know, there would be people who would say, no, racism is nothing but individual acts of racism or individual racists. Other people would be on the other side of no racism as a concept is, you know, only or primarily systemic structural. I hear you saying that it's a, it's a both and, and that biblically, regardless of whether, and I, I would actually love to get your take on this in a second, but regardless of whether systemic racism is a problem in America today, that category has theological um, possibilities. The, the, the Bible does talk about things like racism. It does talk about structural principalities and pa- powers and authorities and like the whole idea of systemic racism or just systemic sin is a biblical yes. category. Um, is that everything I'm saying? Is that, am I capturing what you're saying as well? Um yeah, yeah, and as you know, the 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 word or the phrase systemic racism is an explosive word that means a lot of different things to different people. Yeah. Um, uh, but let me just say to answer your question, the idea of structural sin is is rooted in the biblical story. I right. mean, just take Rome for example. The Roman Empire was a structural power that was humanly speaking humanly speaking, right, responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, of course, God yeah. predestined Jesus to yeah. die, and Jesus willingly came. Uh, but the point is, is that an evil empire was a means by which that God used to to uh, execute uh, Jesus and to accomplish atonement and salvation for our sins. 
And so when I, in the book, I have a, have a section where I talk a, a little bit about, uh, very briefly about systemic racism. And really the only point I'm making is, is that uh, by systemic racism, what I'm saying is, is that those overt laws, those overt intentional laws of the past and those structures in the past that were created for the purpose of dehumanizing, especially blacks and other people of color at a particular time in our history, even though the laws change, the effects of some of those laws and the detriment that they cause still affect certain black communities and communities of color today. And one example that I give is the issue of redlining, which is very complex. Uh, we don't have time to work it out here, but in the in the book, I just make the point that at a particular time in history, there were intentional efforts to keep blacks from uh, ha- having the ability to transfer wealth from one generation to the next. And blacks were kept from having access to certain loans to buy homes and, and those sorts of things. And as a result, uh, those communities were affected in terms of their education, in terms of their, in terms of their health, in terms of uh, other issues. And then even though the laws changed and, and blacks who were uh, in those communities were able to eventually maybe find their way into a better situation, some of those communities still exist today and the effects of those laws of the past Uh, still impact those communities today, even though those folks who are born in those communities are in situations that are no fault of their own, if that makes if that makes sense. That's not. And just to clarify this point here, uh, that does not uh, deny the importance of personal responsibility. We are all responsible for every decision that we make. And furthermore, uh, one of the one of the great things that we learn from reading about uh, blacks and, and 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 others, whites as well, uh, anyone who has had to overcome, one of the things we learn is is that people are able to overcome uh, difficult circumstances in spite of the odds that are placed against them. Mm-hmm. And so one one of the great stories and lessons we learn, I think, from history is is that is that in spite of overt systemic racism in the past, there were blacks even in those days who were still able to flourish mm-hmm. uh, and to, to experience a, a life of flourishing. But that doesn't change the fact that there are still real realities that exist in certain black communities and, and communities of color because of these systemic laws of the past that have their residue still impacting the present, even though the laws have changed to provide, uh, say, to provide an opportunity for equality as it relates to housing. That's super. You're, so another word, yeah, you're super. I love, you're so careful with your words and specific. Sorry, I cut you off though. You keep going. No, I was just saying, you know, another reality related to that is, is that, you know, there, there are, you know, I say this quite often. I am a, I am a privileged black man. I have a middle, I'm a middle-class black man with a PhD. And, and so my son has opportunities at his fingertips that uh, others would not have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's in a situation where he has access and opportunity. And I'm the benefit of, of some of the, I mean, I've worked hard, certainly, but I had a lot of folks, black, white, brown, uh, uh, men and uh, male and female who have who have helped me along the way. And then on the other hand, there are poor whites in, in you know, my hometown of rural Eastern Kentucky who have a lot more disadvantages than mm. my son has because they are poor in, an, in a rural community. So the reason I bring that up is, is to say when I talk about systemic racism, as I've just outlined and articulated for you, uh, m- my point is not that the deck is stacked against all black people everywhere. And I do not argue that uh, blacks don't have personal agency. It's quite the contrary. Everybody has personal agency. It's just certain people are in a certain set of circumstances that make their ability to choose more difficult. But we're still responsible for the choices we make. Right. And even though right. we have personal agency and even though with opportunities and with uh, with access 
people can, and with God's help, you know, I want to emphasize God's help, people can overcome. That doesn't change the fact that there are still systemic realities that um, exist precisely because of, of racism and the way at which it works. And we need to take that seriously. Right. I, no, I, oh man, I, you're so thoughtful and balanced. I, cause for me, the, the race conversation, I, I've really tried to just listen to a wide array of different voices, engage conversations because it's so, it's so important and it's, it can be, I think really complex. And when people make it such a binary, you're on this camp or that camp, rather than really a whole wide multi-layered spectrum of different questions and issues that collide. Um, it just it, a lot of these things I think are not an either or. I, I love how you say, yeah, personal agency, absolutely. That doesn't deny the fact that systemic racism or even the leftover after effects of systemic racism don't play some some role, maybe a big role. You know, I think of you know a classic example might be you know somebody who is born into a let's just say a super just abusive home. I mean, say their mom mm. had boyfriends in and out. I mean, alcohol, drugs, whatever. Maybe the kid was physically, maybe even sexually abused. Like, And when he's in elementary school and he beats up somebody or cusses out a teacher or, or you know, smokes weed behind the back, whatever. Like, he's responsible for those actions. But we cannot deny that mm. there were certain environmental things that certainly shaped, nudged, fostered nurtured those decisions that he's ultimately mm. responsible for but to to just say it's either all his environment or no it's all him to blame he's an individual agent i think it's it can't it's got to be somewhere in the middle right i mean it has to be um and and i yeah. like when you said it, it also makes sense that rather than make a categorical statement here i i gotta be super careful here <laughs> like mm. e even things like yeah systemic racism toward people of color or white privilege with people who are white it's still and I'm, I'm i'm thinking out loud here it makes sense to me to say in certain circumstances those things very much could be true uh, does my whiteness bring me privilege in probably many contexts yeah if i'm applying for an english position at cal state berkeley Maybe not. Like, I don't know if, you know, a humanities department, a secular institution and other places. Yeah, absolutely. I walk around Boise. I don't even think about the fact that I'm white or somebody was of color. They're part of the 8%, you know, and it might, that might be a really different experience. And, and, um, and is that fair? I'm going to stop because I don't want to say some stupid I regret, but is that, is that in your opinion, is that when you think about these broad categories of systemic injustice, white privilege broad categories based on race that it's better to think of that in more specific context these categories may be more true mm -hmm. than in other contexts um yes it's very thank you i you know I, I, this is another issue that i touch on a little bit in the, in the book okay. in the conclusion um one, one of the things i say is is that we can we can all i think we can all agree that at a particular point in history in this country that there were clear benefits that uh, you had as a result of being a white person. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I don't hear anybody, I don't hear anybody at, denying that like pre 1970, hundred yes. percent without a doubt. Correct. Yeah. So, so the, the concept that, that our part of one part of our country's story has been, our story, our, our story is a beautiful story, uh, but it's also a story of, of, of struggle, isn't it, in the in the United States? And um, one part of our story is that you have this reality that uh, whites were they they were privileged in part of the story, and and blacks and other people of color were were dehumanized. Right now. Um, I think it's I think it's is accurate to say that in certain contexts and certain parts of our current reality that some of those benefits could still be a reality for, sure. for people yeah. who, who are white. I, I think, of course, this is debated and, and folks would disagree. 
but there there are not 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 all disparities can be attached to racism. Right. I, I, I think right. it is incorrect to say that if you have a disparity right. Uh, right. in a community of color, it's necessarily because of racism. I think it's also fair to say that that some disparities in yeah. certain contexts would be connected at some level to racism. I just think of again going back to the example I gave earlier, that uh, uh, people who are born into communities that were uh, isolated and and created um, uh, in ways that they are created because there was a there was a um, an intentional effort to keep blacks from having opportunities to flourish. Mm-hmm. And, and kids who are born into those communities that still exist in, in those contexts, I would say that racism plays a role in those disadvantages. Um, even though there are not people uh, necessarily who are intentionally trying to hurt black people in those spaces, that decisions that were made in the past will affect the realities in those spaces. Now, Uh, In addition to that, one of the things I say in the book is is that uh, this doesn't mean that that whites have an innumerable amount of privileges uh, just because they're white. I think that would be an absolute misrepresentation of the of the of the reality. As I said earlier, there are poor whites in eastern Kentucky who will always be in poverty. And, and unless God supernaturally intervenes and provides an opportunity, that the chances of them being able to get out of poverty are highly unlikely. Mm-hmm. And they're not in poverty because they're white. But my point is they're, they're in poverty and they are white. And so it's, mm-hmm. But I'm a middle class black man. I grew up in that same social setting. I grew up in eastern Kentucky. I didn't have access to. Uh, my, my family loved me and provided for me, but we weren't wealthy. Um, I, I'm a survivor of, of I'm, a, I'm a descendant of Jim Crow survivors. My family was born in a Jim Crow and, and they worked hard and, and uh, I didn't have financial privileges. But what I did have was I had, I had access to people who loved me, cared for me, who gave me opportunities mm-hmm. Uh, my my home church, for example, especially in my family also. And uh, my home church was a predominantly white church. I was the first African-American to join that church. They helped me tremendously. My home, my family helped me tremendously. And they gave me the opportunity to be in a situation. I have access to privileges and my son has access to privileges that, that I did not have and poor whites do not have who are growing up, growing up in Eastern Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So I think you're on to something in, in what you just said, I think that I, we need to consider these questions in a, in a case-by-case situation and ask ourselves, is this true about this situation, as yeah. opposed to, to sort of speaking in a monolithic way? Yeah. Uh, this is a very complex conversation. Yeah. And, and I would also, I want to add this, that uh, a way forward I'm presenting in the book is to bring brothers and sisters who are of goodwill from a variety of ethnic postures together to recognize the realities of the past, mm-hmm. to lament the racism of the past, but, but to reject this idea of, of shaming people because of the color of their skin, regardless of the color of their skin, unless together in the power of the Spirit, because of what God has done for us in Jesus, Let's think of ways that we can go forward mm-hmm. to help brothers and sisters of diverse ethnicities flourish. Yeah, that's, that's good. Be a message of hope. That's super helpful and clear. I, I love your. What are your thoughts on the the modern anti-racism movement with like Ibram Kendi and Ta-Nehisi Coates and others, um, Beverly D'Angelo and, um, and then critical race theory. I, we got at least, I, I got to get your thoughts on this. <laughs> um, and it, cause I mean, the, obviously this is a lot of what you're saying. Somebody could, I think very wrongly just, Oh, he's, he's a, he's a critical race theorist or whatever. I, I just, I think that term's just thrown around so much. I don't know why they would say that. I just hear people you slap that label on whatever they don't like, but, um, yeah, your thoughts on kind of some of the more modern 
anti-racist literature and and critical race theory have you have you wrestled i mean i'm 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 assuming you've dabbled at least so i don't at the very least if not (laughs) here's the way i would answer your question i think if someone were to read my book and and i would encourage your your audience actually read the book (laughs) don't don't the intro and give up don't don't just see the long three-page footnote where I'm I'm defining my categories. Don't just jump to the conclusion, but read the whole book. I think it's very clear that that I'm putting forward a very different vision from uh, from what's outlined in some of the authors that you've mentioned. So that um, there are uh, things that can be learned from from the social sciences, certainly. Mm -hmm. Uh, there are things that can be learned from the sciences, but I, I argue in the book that uh, as a comprehensive way of understanding the world, uh, that th- those things are a dead end, mm. and that it, what I'm putting forward is is a redemptive vision. And I think my view, my 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 book is a book that is in in many ways different, many ways different from. Uh, some of the things the author, many of the things the authors that you mentioned are, are arguing, because it's not only pointing out that my book is pointing out there is a problem, and the problem is fundamentally sin and how sin operates, but it's also different because it grounds the it grounds the uh, the solution in the image of God, and the, yeah. cro- the wrath bearing Jesus, and His victorious resurrection from the dead. Okay. But then, it, but it's also different because it is is offering redemption and hope, and it's also different because it, my book is making the argument that that uh, racism is real in, in wherever there is sin mm-hmm. in any community. There's the potential for racism to exist, and and my book also makes the point that. That that racism is not. I'm going I'm to borrow a phrase from another New Testament scholar who interviewed me. Uh, racism is not um, only a sin that uh, one group of people can commit. Right. So that uh, that 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 there are uh, ways in which racism works in a variety of communities. That I said, or, as I said earlier, it doesn't doesn't look the same, but it's there nevertheless. So blacks can be racist and, and it's not just something that whites can do or uh, not some, right. something that Asians can do. Um, but it's also conducted as structural realities. So I think there are uh, numerous things about the, the, uh, my book that I'm doing that, that are, that are different from, uh, some of the other works that are out there uh, in, in the social sciences. Cause I'm, I'm look, here's the deal. And this, I'm a new Testament scholar. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a social scientist, right? right? I'm I'm seeking right. to think exegetically and theologically, wanting to learn where I can learn from others in other disciplines and other fields, wanting to acknowledge where there's a truth that they see that is accurate, but recognizing that fundamentally my program is about uh, what God has outlined for us in Scripture mm-hmm. and seeking how uh, to work that out practically, yeah. and that in Jesus Christ we have the ultimate uh, provision and solution yeah. to to this plight that we're in. That's good. So that's how I'd actually... Yeah. I, I'm curious. You, you swim in pretty conservative circles, professor at Southern. Like, your understanding of race, is that pretty typical in your environment? Or are you? do you feel like you're challenging people to think a little bit differently about it? Or does it just depend on who you're talking to? <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that... Um, the conversation about race is a conversation in any evangelical mm-hmm. context that is a is a complex and messy conversation, and there are those uh, who who are in I think evangelicalism. I'm saying evangelicalism because I'm an evangelical in the in the healthy sense of the term, um, and uh, I believe in a personal conversion experience and yeah. penal substitution, the resurrection yeah. of Jesus from the dead, and, and errancy and authority and all those things. Uh, the physical return of Jesus Christ to earth from heaven. 
that's what I mean when I talk about mm-hmm. evangelical uh, Orthodox Trinitarianism and all, all those good things. Uh, I, I think the conversation about race is complex, and I think there are those who want to shut that conversation down that are, that are out there in evangelicalism. And I think there are others, though, who are of goodwill, and they we might not agree on all the nuance or we might not agree on um, how to work this out practically in our churches, um, but we can all agree that we can do better as Christians than what we're doing now. I think um, and what we're doing now is really just, um, I think, damaging the body of Christ by um, not loving each other well. And I, and I think there are brothers and sisters. Of, I think there are, let me say it this way. I think there are many brothers and sisters out there of diverse uh, ethnicities uh, in, in the Christian community of goodwill who want to do what God wants them to do. Um, love God, love neighbor. But they just don't know what that means biblically and theologically. And I'm trying to help folks to think about that. And I think there are I think there's a I think there are a lot more people who are there than uh, and who would who would who would be resistant to wanting to love God and love neighbor. Yeah. And those those voices yeah. are there. Those voices are there and those voices are loud. Yeah. <laughs> but my point is, is that I, I really I really believe that there are a lot of brothers and sisters of goodwill, white brothers and sisters, black brothers and sisters, brown brothers and sisters, Asian brothers and sisters, and in and, and every other ethnicity that genuinely want to love one another well as it relates to this conversation, and they genuinely don't know how to do it, mm-hmm. and they're nervous, and they're anxious. And I'm not claiming, by the way, I want to just clarify something. I'm not claiming to, uh, claiming to have all the answers because I don't. Yeah. I'm learning. I'm a sinner. Yeah. Just because I'm black doesn't mean I'm qualified. <laughs> I'm not. A, doesn't mean I'm expert on race. Uh, I'm. I'm not an expert on race. That's not my area. I'm a. I'm a Pauline scholar. Uh, but. But I am a Christian who is a black man who is married to an Hispanic woman who is in a multi-ethnic church who, who does uh, uh, live in a real world and who does teach at a at a white evangelical school where I'm trying to work these things out in a way that's redemptive. That's and I'm trying to put forth the vision, I think, in the book that is seeking to bring brothers and sisters together around Jesus, around God's word, and let's go forward and, and, and do it in a way that is consistent with you know, Scripture, common sense, common grace, but also our social location. And I, and I think, going back to your original question, I think there are brothers and sisters out there who want that, but I think for those of us who want that, it is a challenge. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I think because. there's a lot of there's a lot of fear and just you, you, in politicalization or political lenses that Christians are to a fault operating through. I mean, especially in the last couple of years, it's like even something like systemic racism. You know, four or five years ago, that could be a really interesting discussion that most Christians would be happy to have to explore. What does the Bible say? What do we mean by this? What you know, let's let's wrestle with it. But now. Because if somebody is on the political, in this case, political right, if they hear something like systemic racism, they've heard from, I don't know, Ben Shapiro or Tucker Carlson or whoever. Like, I, I shouldn't even use names because I, you know, um, but like they, they might hear, oh, that's that's a left wing thing. That's bad. That's whatever. And they immediately kind of operate out of fear rather than engaging a conversation around this um this topic from a from a through a biblical lens they they are already kind of three steps in the wrong direction because they have been told that it's you know good or bad based on their kind of political outlet and and i think it happens on both both sides um and this is why i so appreciate about your work is it's so richly and primarily and fundamentally theological and i just that's where i just wish in the race conversation more and more evangelicals would set aside some of the broader cultural categories and concerns and tribalism and battle. And let's just look at what the Bible and gospel says about something that's not on the fringe of the biblical storyline. And that's, that might be the number one thing I love about your work with, you know, the, the bits that I've read is just, you, you you do show how these themes and categories are interwoven into the main thread of the storyline of the gospel. And that's something that hopefully any Christian who says they believe the Bible can at least say, Okay, <laughs> we can start here. This is a fundamental mm. biblical 
set of categories that we need to wrestle with because God is God's the one who authored it. But I'm preaching yeah, you, to the choir. You're <laughs> No, it's it's fascinating that you're some of the things you're saying, man. You're touching on themes in my in my conclusion. I'm I'm amazed that you haven't read it because you're <laughs> you're, you're talking about a lot of things that I'm hitting on. And one of the things that you just said that I touch on in the book is that uh, you know my book is going to make people from many different postures uncomfortable hmm. and encouraged. Yeah. And what I mean by that is the book is not tribalistic at all. Yeah. Uh, uh, there, there are places in the book where um, there are people who would be encouraged that uh, might be in one place ethnically and, and another place, say politically, for example. And then there are others who, in, in that same posture, other places where they would be uh, challenged. And so uh, this book is 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 those who are wanting a tribalistic book that preaches to their base. That's not what this book is. Um, This book is truly trying as best as I can in my fallenness. And I'm not claiming to have done it uh, perfectly, but I'm trying to, to, uh, to present an argument that moves us as Christians who believe in the authority of scripture forward together in the power of the spirit in spite of our ethnic and political diversity yeah. let's go forward in a healthy way with the uh, the scriptures and the cross and the resurrection and the image of god as what guides us yeah. and and i i i i i think that there are people who will be moved along who are uh, wanting, as I said earlier, wanting to do this of goodwill, mm-hmm. but those who are who are committed to being tribalistic, you know, I hope they read the book. I want them to read the book, yeah. but I don't think those people are going to be really one to what I'm saying, even though it's full. I have a I have a 14 and a half page scripture index. <laughs> uh, 14, and a half, yeah. 14 and a half pages scripture index. That's not so, surprising, so, uh, Jarvis, at all. That's that's not shocking. <laughs> so, and the reason I bring that up yeah. is because there there are those who who love the Bible, who still won't be convinced yeah. that this is yeah. something the Scripture is outlining, even though the book is a biblical theology. And that's nice. That's I, mean, I, I pray that the Lord would use it in their lives as well. But but at the end of the day, uh, the book is 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 I hope will make many people encouraged mm-hmm. and challenged many people as well who read it and that those folks yeah. would realize that they yeah. can live out redemptive kingdom diversity in a way that is faithful to the gospel, faithful to the word of God, mm-hmm. faithful to their theological convictions, faithful to the image of God, um, and that, that will bring glory to his name. And they don't have to give in to those voices on the left or those voices on the, on the right, but they can give in to what Jesus is outlining, what God is outlining in his word, and seek to work this out in the power of the spirit with as many diverse people of God, <laughs> ethnically speaking, that they can until they die. And I pray God would just, brother, I, I pray God would just breathe on this in some small way yeah. and allow the church to benefit from it and to bring a redemptive vision to homes and churches and communities and Christian institutions and organizations in a way that glorifies Jesus Christ and exalts his name forever. That's my hope, bro. Gosh. The book is Gosh. Redemptive Kingdom Diversity of Biblical Theology of the People of God, put out by Baker Academic. It came out a little over a month ago. I would highly, highly encourage you guys to check it out. Also, uh, go to... Um, Jarvis's page. You're, you have a faculty page at uh, it's sb, sbts.edu. Well, just Google Jarvis Williams. It'll take you there and you'll see a number of other books that Jarvis has um, written. And also I'm looking right now at your page. You have a couple YouTube interviews. Um, you have your email on here. So people can email you or they can reach out to you at Twitter on your, your, uh, your Twitter account there. So um, Jarvis, thanks so much for being on the podcast. And man, I, I, I hope that this, you know, by you being on here, 
you know, several people will pick up your book, go through it, check it out, pass it on to others. Cause, um, it, yeah, I, I haven't read it yet. Again, I confess I'm going to get into it soon, but I, I know you and love you brother. And just everything you're saying just is so wise and seasoned and careful and nuanced. So, and, and humble. I just so appreciate your humility. So thanks for uh, being on the podcast. Thank you, brother. So good to see you. Hey friends, if you've been blessed, challenged, encouraged, or angered by this podcast, would you consider supporting it through patreon.com? That's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. All the info is in the show notes. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to Q&A podcasts, um, monthly Patreon-only blogs, and basically just get access to the community and help support this uh, ministry that we're doing at Theology in the Raw. Again, check out the show notes and consider supporting this show.